Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. In a world that we live in that is honestly at times way too bland, too boring, but also too foggy and obscure, in that world, we, Jesus is saying, are spicy and we are bright. I just heard it, hardworking people of central Pennsylvania. I heard the voices inside of your heads um, that many of us here had and that that voice sounds like this. Oh, I should be more salty and more lighty or something. Which right there, I mean, the voices in our heads rarely use good grammar, which probably means we should take them not so seriously. What I would say to the voices is, voices, stop, stop shooting all over Jesus' sermon. Jesus isn't saying that you should be salt and light. Jesus is saying that you are salt and light, beautifully tasty and illuminating. So live with that honesty. So yes, and I think this can even be embraced, we do grow cynical and negative about the world we live in, about the ugliness, the wrongness in our world. I'm making it a word, people. I'm making it a word. But we also notice, don't we, if we dare notice, and I think maybe that's something where we can prod each other a little bit, encourage each other, there is beauty. There is beauty that we can notice. Beautiful righteousness, beautiful acts of caring, of goodness, and we hunger for that. I think that's an appropriate thing to rekindle our hunger for beauty. That hunger is a sign of God in us, God working in us, and God desiring us. I'm always captured by this song that was popularized by Noel Paul Stuckey. That's the Paul and Peter, Paul and Mary. Why do we hunger for beauty? Everyone over 50 understood what I just said, and it's fine if you didn't. Um, it wasn't actually written by Noel Paul Stuckey. It was written by a once Mennonite fellow, believe it or not. But I'm going to subject you to the third verse of this song. It's, it's nothing profound, but it is an invitation to pay attention to beauty. So imagine a cold winter day, and you're looking out through a frosted window, and you're daring to notice beauty. And it goes something like this. I'll butcher it, but you'll get the words. Yeah. Frost on the window, never the same. So many patterns fit in the frame, captured in motion, frozen in flame. And in the patterns is there a name? Why do we hunger for beauty? Don't we hunger for God-loving words, for God-loving thoughts, God-honoring actions towards others. We hunger. In fact, that's, that's why we can get cynical, because we're hungry for something better. 
but we do hunger for something that is beautiful. And isn't that the beauty of righteousness? Why do we hunger? Because God puts that in us. So, something to play around with, the idea of righteousness actually being beautiful. Righteousness is also free. I'm so glad Pastor Joshua mentioned uh, Gnosticism a couple of Sundays ago. You don't need to remember that strange word. I'll say it a couple times, Gnosticism. It was a school of thought for centuries before and after Jesus, and it probably had some good parts, but it certainly had some bad parts, and that's what we know most about. The bad parts we still have with us today as well, which is why we talk about it, even though we don't ever call it Gnosticism anymore, partly because that is, it's hard to say. One of the bad parts of this system, though, was, was the thought was the idea that spiritual knowledge and spiritual wisdom, that that is like a special secret that is available to the enlightened who somehow get those secrets, and then they've, you know, in, sense, in a sense, they've mastered the spells, the spells. And so they are the most spiritual. Instead of calling that Gnosticism, I'd like to call it the myth of wizards and peasants. In other words, this idea that there are spiritual wizards among us who know and feel the right things about God. They know things, they feel things, we're kind of envious of them. And then there's the rest of us, the unspiritual peasants who just don't get it and we're always looking to the wizards to be more spiritual. Have you ever felt confident that you are among the spiritual and looked down on those you thought inferior? I think if we're honest, no matter how inferior we feel to others, there's always someone else we feel superior to when it comes to religiosity, righteousness. Or have you been on that flip side where you feel unspiritual, you feel intimidated and, and, and confused or mystified by those that you think are super spiritual? And this doesn't just affect religion at all, right? <laughs> I mean, this is like so many corners of our lives. In entertainment, we are obsessed with superheroes, as though, as though we need, as human beings, to manufacture these false demigods so that we can convince ourselves that we just don't measure up, that we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not muscular enough, we're not green enough, whatever. There's other areas too. I mean, in technology, where my industry is, there are also wizards and peasants. We imagine that there are those who know, and those who don't, and we will happily plead ignorance as a way to escape responsibility while placing extreme demands and blame on those we perceive as the nerd wizards. Or, to flip that around, those of us in expert positions find it too easy to disregard the trouble of others. We pick and choose who we help. It seems to me this is not just technology, but it seems to me that life would be better if we share knowledge freely and also admit that none of us really know what we're doing. So let's just keep failing together until we can build amazing things. Those are just some examples. It's a metaphor. I wonder what your experience is with righteousness in other areas of life, if this wizard peasant mentality is as pervasive as I think it is. If it is, no wonder we bring that into our church and our faith in God. 
we beat ourselves up that we are not good enough, while sometimes at the very same time looking down on those we think are inferior in righteousness. But what if righteousness is free to everybody? So the Apostle Paul, he steps right into this numerous times, but here's one place. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 12, Paul steps in. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing other than, know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, trembling, and my message and my preachings were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. It's a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it's written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, those are the things, let's, here's, here's, let's pay attention to the conjugation of this sentence, God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but is the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So here we see Paul, like many other early Christian leaders, kind of flirt with the wizard peasant heresy. Kind of flirt with it. Like, oh yeah, yeah, there's a mysterious message of wisdom out there. Yes, yes, yes. But with God's spirit, folks, this stuff is free. Like, it's, it's just there for you. It's not us. It's not us unearthing these special secrets, the secret sauce to super spirituality. We aren't the ones who even act. God is the one who acts, bringing about righteousness in you willingly. So Beth and I, when we were, here's a metaphor, all right. When Beth and I, when we were newlyweds, we went out to a maple festival. I think we did. We went to Highland County, Virginia. It was a wonderful place to enjoy meeting strangers and finding things in common with them. So while we were waiting in line that morning for the buckwheat pancakes, drenched with maple syrup, we struck up a conversation with the couple ahead of us. And we found that we were both uh, very interested in gardening that year. Soon it became apparent that the fellow had a gardening secret. He had special wizardry knowledge, for he was a green thumb wizard. His plants were lush, they produced really well, and I was, I was kind of interested. I was hooked. What was his secret? So I asked, and the couple, they exchanged knowing looks. Could they trust us? with the secret sauce recipe. Would they be willing to share with us mere peasants? So the man leaned in carefully to me. 
conspiratorially, didn't know I was going to get that word out, conspiratorially, and he said, miracle grow. <laughs> like, what do you say to that? And he said, whoa, I never thought of that. Nitrogen and potassium and what am I missing? No one's helping me here? All right, well, three chemicals are in that thing. Uh, that's going to bug me, so someone yell it out. Uh, so the man leaned carefully. To, yeah, so he, he, this, for me, is just like when we treat the spiritual life, the righteous life, as like having any kind of secrets, like having any kind of like the special illuminated, seminary trained, whatever people, and then there's the rest of us. Treating the righteous life as a bundle of secrets for spiritual wizards to hoard and to share carefully. That's just as far-fetched as treating miracle grow as a guarded secret. Did I say potassium? I did say potassium, right? <sighs> no one's yelling it loud enough, but anyways, we'll get it. Correct me afterwards. What if God's righteous life is available everywhere for really cheap? Like, you already have this in your shed or garage, and if you don't, it's available at like every grocery store and Walmart on the planet. All right, another take on this. Have you ever experienced or heard of the term imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome. Um, some industries talk about it more than others and certain levels of, if you're in the C-suite, you probably talk about it a little more than the rest of us, that kind of thing. But it's that deep doubt that your skills and know-how aren't, aren't good enough, no matter how much you learn. That sure, phosphates, right? Thank you. Oh my goodness. Got it out. Phosphorus. Okay. So imposter syndrome is when you feel like you don't know the stuff that you should. That's what imposter syndrome is. And that surely everyone around you has vastly superior abilities and intellect. And at any moment, one of them is going to point it out and be like, hey, look, that Jonathan Bowman thinks he can actually blank, whatever it is, preach, teach, write computer code, lead people, run a race, learn to dance, marry someone as awesome as her, build a shelf, be a dad, you know, what's in your blank? I don't know, like, what is the thing that you have nightmares about? Some, everyone pointing at you and be like, he thinks he can be a, whatever. How would you finish that sentence? That's imposter syndrome, and it is, it is rampant, folks, it is epidemic in our world, and it is entirely built upon the idea of competitive success. The sad belief that I can't be right unless I'm righter than somebody else. And if someone else is righteous, it must mean I am some kind of wrongtious. Now it is an English word because I've used it three times. The lie says you are either a wizard or you are a peasant when it comes to knowledge, righteousness, spirituality. But God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's righteousness is not won by being better than others. It's not lost by being worse than others. That's not the game God is playing. God reveals. God works in us. God works in those odd ducks around you. And the supply of righteousness is totally free without any supply chain issues. 
So if righteousness is free, it is also a gift. It is a gift and not a trophy. Uh, what might it mean to live as though righteousness is a free gift for everyone? I once worked at a company that had the motto, always do the right thing. It's a great motto, but I often felt like it only went halfway because it's not good enough to do the right thing. It's also important to carefully discern what the right thing is. So I'm just admitting that in this sermon, I'm kind of doing the same thing, right? I'm focusing on living and being righteousness without actually spending any time discussing what righteous living looks like. That's okay. We got other sermons preached by other people who can talk about that. But it is a fair point. It's a fair point. And I do think that if God's righteousness is free, that that actually encourages certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of righteousness, and it discourages other kinds of behavior. Specifically, God's righteousness in us will prompt us to notice the gaps, to notice the gaps between people and to work to shrink those gaps. Because if righteousness is free to everyone, free to everyone, and it's beautiful, then it is a gift. It is a gift and it is not a trophy because it's a gift available to everyone. So if connection with God is a pure gift, then we have received. We have received. What might it mean, church, to go into every relationship, to go into every encounter with the identity that I and they are recipients of a free gift and that God is the giver, God is the gift offering a good and a beautiful life. I mean, it even revolutionizes how we relate with so-called evildoers. So this brings our attention to gaps, primarily between rich and poor, between popular and unpopular, because folks, as I've said to the youth group, it starts in middle school. The separations in our society start in middle school. Between popular and unpopular, between the privileged powerful and those without power, between those who have and those who do not. And sometimes we may need reminders that righteousness is not a trophy to feel proud of, to prove ourselves to God, but that true righteousness should propel us to close the gaps of rich and poor. I've heard it pointed out, this is kind of interesting, by archeologists who study ancient Israel, I've heard it pointed out that it is possible as you look back through history, like digging things up in dirt, to compare the differences in sizes of houses at different times. I'll say that again, like, like at one point in time, there will be big houses and little houses. And then at other points in Israel's history, everyone kind of has the same size of house. You following where I'm going? Like archeologists can find at different times, there are big disparities in the size of houses. And at other times, everyone kind of has a similar house size. Do you notice the gaps? So here's what's interesting, is that God sends the biblical prophets, like the Amos types and Jeremiah types and Isaiah types, when the houses are not the same size, but when they are vastly different. So archeologists find when the houses are the same, prophets don't show up. When houses are very different, prophets show up. It seems to be that when people 
when people most need reminders of God's love and action are when the gaps are the largest. Here's an example from Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. This gets interesting. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. I mean, that sounds righteous. Doesn't that sound so righteous? As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, we say? Look at our fasting trophy. And you have not seen it, God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Those were cool things they did back then. We don't understand them now, but trust me, they were cool. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. So the righteousness we can expect God to produce in us is not a badge or a trophy. It is the refreshment of God's love poured out for you and for many. What if we went through life kind of like we go through communion in a few seconds? What if we went through life palms up and out? Always receiving God's work of making us salt and light, knowing that that same gift we're receiving is available for everybody else. Again, just like communion, we receive the gift of Jesus, who loves us, who forgives us, propels us to be salt and light, knowing that the next person gets the same thing. They get Jesus too. We're going to do communion now. That's a great idea. 